Amen. I'd invite you to turn with me to the passage that our brother Jonathan read for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 1 down to verse 12. Now as we were reading that text, you may say, well, we're observing the Lord's Supper this morning, and why are we studying a passage on marriage and divorce? Well, this morning I hope you see that it's all tied in together. What does marriage represent? Well, we're going to see this morning that marriage, it reflects Christ and His bride. Christ and the church. And the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that great supper day in glory where we'll stand with our bridegroom as His bride and enjoy, as what Jonathan read from Revelation 19, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So, as we study marriage this morning and observe the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray that it points us forward to that great day where we as Christ's bride will enjoy that great supper of the Lamb. Mark chapter 10, verse 1 to 12. Now, marriage, it's under attack in our day. So it's also a timely sermon for us as God's people. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. And Satan wants to get rid of marriage, an institution that was placed by God. He wants to outright get rid of marriage in its entirety. And then also the the broad evangelical church wants to compromise in marriage and, and broaden the terms of marriage. So marriage, whether in the church or outside of the church, is under attack. And you may say, well, why is it under attack? Well, I believe it's under attack Because marriage is the one institution, according to Ephesians 5, that reflects Christ in the bride of Christ. And so, it's quite obvious that Satan wants to get any reflection of Christ and his bride out of this world altogether. So as Christians, if you want to be radical in this day, it's quite simple. Love your spouse, husbands. If you want to be radical in this day, and if you want to swim upstream and go against the tide, it's quite simple. Love your bride as Christ loves His bride. This is a message for every single one of us. If we want to stand against the tide, then we have to uphold the God-designed context of human sexuality. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, Mark chapter 9, verse 49 to verse 50, It ends in a strange way, but it ties into chapter 10. Notice with me the context here as Mark closes in on chapter 9. Notice what he says in verse 49 to verse 50. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire, so that salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, we saw that there was the cost of discipleship. And now, as Mark concludes chapter 9 and goes into chapter 10, he says to the believer, don't lose your saltiness. He speaks of salt and fire. And that's going back to the Old Testament sacrifices. And what Mark is telling his follow, the, uh, what Mark, by the inspiration, is writing down from the lips of the Lord, our Lord's saying to His followers, 
that your life, that's one of spiritual worship. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose that fire. Your life is a life that is lived in the presence of God and under the authority of God and for the glory of God. And not only is your life lived before God individually, but your Christian walk also, chapter 10, will affect your marriage. Not only is your individual Christian life one that is lived in the presence of God and under the authority of God and for the glory of God, but now in chapter 10, your Christian marriage, it ought to be one lived as worship to God for the glory of God. So there's this transition. You're not off the hook. Your marital life as a believer in Jesus Christ has that chief end of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Now notice our context. Mark 10, verse 1. After speaking of the cost of discipleship, Jesus, Mark 10, verse 1, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And now notice in verse 2 what happens. The Pharisees come. Verse 2. Mark 10, verse 2, the Pharisees came up to Jesus for what purpose? To find out God's design of biblical sexuality and to live by God's created order? Well, no. Notice verse 2, they came up to Jesus in order to test him. To test him. And what do they say? Well, they pose a question, and their question isn't a sincere question. Notice verse 2. They wanted to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they don't want to know the true answer, but they want to get off the hook of their marriages. They want to find loopholes. They want to really divorce their wives and get out of the marriage covenant that they have with their wives. So they're trying to pin Jesus down and test him and see how our Lord answers. Now, the question is, why are the Pharisees bringing up Mark 10, verse 2. Why are they asking that question to our Lord? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, if you were to read outside and look at the traditions of the rabbis in the day of Christ, they had man-made traditions that went outside of Scripture and that went outside of the God-created order of biblical sexuality. And the Pharisees, through the traditions of men twisted biblical sexuality and they twisted uh, the covenant of marriage and they actually had a low and an unbiblical view of the covenant of marriage. I'll give you an an example of this. Uh, The rabbinic school of Hillel says that a husband may divorce his wife if she has spoiled a dish for him. I mean, that's the state of the Pharisee's heart. That if my wife doesn't make a dish for me that I delight in, the Pharisees think that that's a loophole to break the covenant of marriage and to divorce their wife and to forsake her. That's the state of the Pharisees. And quite frankly, that's the state in our day. That's the low view of marriage that we see in our day. That's the spirit of the age. Ah, she didn't do something that I like. I ought to divorce her and find someone else. Jesus is rebuking that. You can't find loopholes, Pharisees. I'll give you another example. The Mishnah. The Mishnah says that he may divorce his wife if, she find, if he finds a better-looking 
woman. Now, that's the Pharisees, and that's what's happening in our day. So the Scriptures have a word for the spirit of the age that wants to twist marriage and that wants to bring a low view of marriage and get rid of marriage altogether. Jesus Christ says this loophole behavior to break the covenant of marriage in an unlawful manner. What is the case? It is, it is ungodly. It, it is what brings the wrath of God upon a people. We see that in Romans 1 verse 18. When men and women go outside of God's created order for human sexuality, it says that God handed them over in His wrath to a debased way of thinking. So does this behavior from the heart of the Pharisee, does it please God? No, it does not, but brings his wrath. And this is the spirit of the age that we're living in where men and women emphasize unfaithfulness more than faithfulness to the covenant of marriage. Now with all that said, I want to show you two things and I want us to ultimately see why marriage is something that we must uphold and one that we must glory in and one that we must boast in because it's, it's greater than us. It speaks of the glory of Jesus Christ and his church. So there is far more at stake than just us, but the glory of God is involved. So first, I want you to see what Jesus addresses. First, he addresses God's beautiful design of marriage, and then he'll address the tragedy of the fall. But notice, before anything else, Jesus shows us the beautiful design of marriage that we must uphold and we must cling to because it ultimately reflects the glory of God. Notice Jesus in verse 3. He answers the Pharisees. He answered them, verse 3. What did Moses command you? What do the Scriptures say? Well, notice how they answer. Verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. I mean, they, they fail to grasp the true meaning here. They quote Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 and 4. But notice, Jesus says, verse 5, it was because of your hardness of heart he wrote this commandment. I mean, you Pharisees, your heart is hardened. You're haters of God. And then notice Jesus goes to creation and shows us the good design of marriage, the beautiful design. He says in verse 6, but, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation. This is God's design. The states, they want you to think, oh, marriage was just something that was invented a couple hundred years ago. And they would even say it's, it's really white supremacy and it's all this, this undue hardship and all these oppressors. Well, no, God, God says in his word, this is from the beginning of creation. This is how God designed mankind to flourish and glorify him. Verse 6, it's from the beginning of creation. And Jesus brings the Pharisees back to creation. Notice, he quotes Genesis 1, verse 27, and Genesis 2, verse 24. God made them male and female. He sets the parameters of the creation of man, two genders. Verse 7, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh, 
Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now let's see what Jesus is quoting. Turn with me in Genesis for a moment, and let's see the beginning of the Bible. Because if you get Genesis wrong, you get the whole Bible wrong. And if you get Genesis wrong, you get God wrong. And if you get Genesis wrong, you get man wrong. And if you get Genesis wrong, you get everything wrong. We need a robust understanding of Genesis in our day. Because the entire theology of the Bible is seen in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Genesis chapter 12. And I want you to notice God's glorious design. Notice Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning... So Jesus says, from the beginning, he's quoting Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God, the sovereign ruler, the creator of all things, he created the heavens and the earth. So this was not all designed by by mere evolutionary processes, it's designed by the creator who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. And he did it in six literal 24-hour periods within the span of one week. Notice the Bible here. Let God speak to us. Verse 3, notice, first day of creation. God said, he spoke, let there be light. And there was light. There's the sovereign Lord creating on the first day. And notice how the first day ends. Verse 5. There was evening and there was morning the first day. A literal day, the first day of creation. Evening, morning, the first day. Light was created. Notice the second day, verse 6. God said, he spoke, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate from the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And then verse 8, God called the expanse Heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And then notice the third day in verse 9 and verse 11. God said, he said what? He said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. And then verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And then notice how the third day ends. Verse 13, evening and morning, the third day. Notice the fourth day. Verse 14, God said. And then the fifth day, God said. In verse 20, there was evening, morning. And then notice the last day of creation in which I want to zoom in on because that's what our Lord quotes. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, on the last day of creation, the pinnacle of creation, what does God do? He creates man and his image to glorify him. And they glorify him by having dominion and going through the earth and spreading the knowledge and the glory of God from sea to sea. Notice Genesis 1 verse 26. The sixth day of creation. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then we zoom in. Notice how God's created man in his image. This is God's good design that Jesus points the Pharisees to. 
Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. How? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And notice God's blessing. This is a good design. Notice verse 28. God blessed them. God blesses that which is good and pure and lovely in his sight. So God creates man in his image and he blesses them. God says in his word that those created in his image only have two genders. You're either a biological male or a biological female. And that is what is pleasing and good in God's sight. And anything outside of that, any perversion or every de- any deviance from that, it's untrue. You either have an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. It's untrue, but it's also a perversion. Anything outside of God's created order is blasphemous because it blasphemes the one who's created us in his image. So the glory of God is at stake when we throw the good design of the Lord creating man in his image, male and female. If we throw that under the rug and we throw dirt on it and we don't uphold it, That's something that God and his glory is wrapped up in. And God says, it's blessed. And then notice verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, brothers and sisters, this is nothing that we should be ashamed of. The world wants you to feel Like you're some radical extremist for saying this is good, this is lovely, this is the way that God's designed you, and this is the way that God has created you in this beautiful way to reflect Him and to spread His glory among the nations through having dominion and being fruitful and multiplying. The world wants you to feel like this is something we should be ashamed of and maybe Maybe we don't die on this hill. Some would say, oh no, that's too extreme. Well, the most loving thing to do for Christians is to uphold what God upholds and to bless what God is blessing and to say that which is good, which God calls is good. So on on the time in which we live in, this, this good design of God creating man in his image, both male and female, two genders, this is good, And we uphold it, and we proclaim it. And so Jesus quotes to the Pharisees, this is God's design from creation. He quotes Genesis 1.27, but then he quotes a second text concerning God's institution. And we need to see this because the state did not institute marriage. They like to think that. But ultimately, the institution of marriage goes back to the creation on the sixth day. It's God who created marriage. It's God who designs this institution for male and female to flourish in terms of human sexuality, the covenant of marriage. So notice the second text Jesus quotes in Genesis 2. Verse 24, and soon we're going to see how this all points to Christ and his bride. But notice the institution of marriage from the hand of God. Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they 
shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you see God's good design for human sexuality to flourish? God created man in his image, male and female, and he created the covenant of marriage according to Malachi 2 verse 14, this covenant before God with one male and one female coming together in this monogamous relationship, this one flesh union. God says, this is how I created you. This is how you can express your sexuality. It is through a husband coming to his wife, having this one union. And this is what is good and this is what is beautiful in my sight. So we cling to what God calls is good and we reject anything outside of this parameter. Now in our day, we need to understand that anything outside of Genesis 24, both in thoughts and in word and in deed, is a perversion of God's creation of human sexuality. Now, as we consider this, I want you to look back at Mark chapter 10. Notice Jesus shows us that even after the fall in Genesis 3, this is still God's good design and what we should pursue and uphold. How do we see that? Well, notice Mark 10. After quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, notice Jesus, he goes on in Mark 10, verse 8, halfway through. So they are no longer two, but one. And then he says, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so we see even after the fall, Jesus says, this is something good. And this is something that is lovely in my sight, this covenant of marriage where male and female can flourish. Now, that's God's good design. Now, you may say, well, why do I need to invest in God's good good design? Well, we're going to see how it points to Christ and why it is good and why it is lovely and why a compromise of this biblical created order, it's a shame on the gospel and it's spitting on the Lord who created us. Why? Well, we need to invest in marriage because it reflects Christ. I want you to think of the mystery of marriage in Ephesians 5 for a moment. The Apostle Paul quotes what Christ quoted in Genesis 24. Notice Ephesians chapter 5. Here's the mystery about marriage and why we must uphold it and why we must never compromise in it because it's greater than us. It glorifies Christ. Notice Ephesians 5 and verse 31 to verse 32. I want you to see the Apostle Paul quotes in verse 31, Genesis 2, 24. Notice Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now if we were to stop there, we wouldn't see the glory of marriage. And we wouldn't see why it's been created and what it points us forward to. But notice Paul goes one step further and expounds this text under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's God's ultimate design in human sexuality in the covenant of marriage. Notice verse 32 of Ephesians 5. Paul says this mystery 
is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What mystery? The mystery of verse 31, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and become one flesh. Paul says that this mystery is glorious. It is profound. It is something that we must uphold and something that we must proclaim that it speaks of Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Now, we often see that that a crisis in the home, a crisis that we see in our day is that, that even within the Christian household, we forget the ultimate purpose of marriage. We forget this mystery. In a crisis in the home, it always leads to a crisis in society. And Paul, he points believers to this great mystery. Just as Eve was formed out of the side of Adam, that Adam's bride came out of of Adam's side, how does, how does the church come to fruition? It's out of the pierced side of the Lord Jesus Christ that the bride of Christ came to being. The hymn writer says that the church is one foundation. Is Jesus Christ her Lord? She is his new creation by water and the word. And hear how Christ the bridegroom came for his bride and see how his bride came to be. Well, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. So we see Eve, the bride of Adam, comes from Adam's side. And the bride of Christ comes from his pierced side. That it's through his shed blood that he purchased his bride as he was on the cross. And as he bore our sins, and as he drunk the wrath that was due to your account, what happened? They put a spear in his side and, and water and blood poured from the Savior's body. And the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, was birthed. You see how marriage points to something far greater, Christian. Notice Paul even in the roles of Husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 shows us that it ultimately points forward to Christ. Notice Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands are to love their wives in light of the cross. Husbands know that because you have been so loved by Jesus Christ, that you're to love your bride as Christ loved his bride. Notice Ephesians 5 verse 21. The context of marriage lived in light of the cross. Husbands, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Love your wives. How? As the world says, the world makes a joke out of husbands loving their wives. They make it seem like it's, it's walking around with a chain on your leg. That is foolish. That ought to be rejected. We ought not to laugh at those things. We ought to love our wives as Christ Love the church. It's this servant kind of love. It's this tender kind of love. How do we see that? Well, Paul says it's as Christ gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives every day by giving up yourself for your bride, by laying down your life as Christ laid down his life for his bride. Why? For what purpose? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, that he might see his bride flourish spiritually 
and become more like Christ, that, she, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see what marriage is pointing to. It's something far greater. It reflects Christ. The way husbands love their wives reflects how Christ loved the church. And notice also the role of the wife in marriage in Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, as He leads you in green pastures, and as He leads you under the ultimate headship of Jesus Christ, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, rooted in creation, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body and Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The world wants to destroy any complementarian view of marriage, but Paul says that this is God's design to glorify Himself in proclaiming His name and His saving work through the work on the cross. And it plays its role in the Christian marriage. Now, we see then the importance of investing in our marriage and upholding this biblical design because it glorifies Christ, what's the method? How do we uphold the biblical model that God has set in creation, and how can we invest, if we are married, in our spouse? Why do we need to have a method? Because if we don't have a method, and if we don't have a game plan, that's where marriages break down. That's where you get the pharisaical heart who's trying to find every loophole unlawfully to get outside of the marriage covenant. It's when we fail to invest and when we instead foster up hidden sins in the covenant of marriage that slowly we stop dating our spouse, we stop praying with our spouse, we stop caring for our spouse. So what's an application for every single one of us who's married and one day, Lord willing, who will be married to uphold and to invest in this God-created design There's two things, shepherd your spouse and date your spouse. Practical things, but that is how we can allow biblical sexuality in the covenant of marriage to flourish. Shepherd your spouse, care for their soul. You're one flesh, one body under this union, under God. You minister to one another. You don't neglect your body, Paul says, but you you care for it. You minister to one another. You Pray with your spouse, not just in family devotion, but, but pray as a couple. Bring your needs as a couple before the Lord. How can I pray for my husband? How can I pray for my wife? What are their needs? What are their stresses? It's when we fail to care for our spouse's soul that breakdown happens, that sin flourishes, that adultery happens. We pray for our spouse. We read the Bible with our spouse. We care for the spiritual health of our spouse because a spiritually healthy spouse and a spiritually healthy marriage impacts every other area. So shepherd one another under the pastures of God's Word and date one another. Be practical. Find a time where you can 
Spend time together. Do something you enjoy. Go somewhere. Communicate. Know what you both appreciate and enjoy. Because it's as we neglect these that marriages break down and God's beautiful, glorifying design. It's corrupted. It's polluted. And that's what Satan wants. So that is God's design. It points to Christ in the church. Now I have a a solemn warning to every single one of us. We ought to all take heed lest we fall. Jesus ends with the tragedy of the fall in Mark 10. Notice with me the tragedy of the fall. There's God's good design. But sin in life and sin in marriage, it destroys your soul, but it also destroys marriages. And we see that most of the issues in our day stem from this reality of a breakdown in marriages. We see statistically that men that go to prison and commit grievous crimes, they didn't have a father figure who loved their wife. There's a breakdown here. So sin against God, it always reaps death, and Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, and he also warns his disciples. Notice Verse 5 again of Mark 10. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and says, Because of your hardness of heart, he that is Moses wrote you this commandment concerning divorce. Bill Mounts translates verse 5 as, It was your hard-hearted rebellion against God that led to a serious defilement of your marriage. So sin destroys. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees who are trying to find a loophole out of the marriage covenant and trying to unlawfully divorce their wives. Jesus is saying that you are only doing this because your heart is so hardened against God that you're defiling the marriage. R.C. Sproul says that divorce is not an ideal to be pursued but something we should strive to prevent when possible. And then Sproul says, God gave the gift of marriage to our first parents, Adam and Eve, with the design that it should be permanent, a permanent union, a joining of complementary divine images, bearing uh, with one another one flesh for the glory of God. Jesus is saying, even after the fall, Pharisees, my intention, my design that which is pleasing in my eyes, that which glorifies me, is to not let sin reign in your hearts and to not let your hearts be so hardened that you you divorce your wife in, in an unlawful manner. You're seeking every kind of possibility to not love your spouse as Christ loved the church. Now notice... In verse 10, the disciples have a question. They're confused. What is Jesus speaking of? What's so serious about the Pharisees' question in their manner of life? Well, notice Mark 10, verse 10. Jesus uh, has the disciples before him in a house. Verse 10, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And notice the response of Jesus. At first, we say, what's he getting at? Verse 11, he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits 
adultery. Now, it's important to understand the context here primarily as we look at this verse and unpack it. Remember who Jesus is addressing. The Pharisees have a low view of marriage, a twisting view of marriage, and they're unlawfully divorcing their spouse. And Jesus is telling the disciples their manner of conduct is sin. That them unlawfully divorcing their wife and marrying another is committing adultery. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, you ought not to follow this pattern. These are the traditions of men. This is what is displeasing in my sight. Disciples, your call is to pursue marital faithfulness. Now we know in a parallel text, if you look with me in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus doesn't give us many loopholes for divorce, but he gives two situations where divorce is permissible. One's in Matthew 19, verse 8 to 9, and then we'll look briefly at 1 Corinthians 7, 15 to unpack this. But Jesus is emphasizing you ought not to have that pharisaical spirit trying to put out all these loopholes before you, but even, even if you reach this point, Wayne Grudem says the first question must always be, is it possible that this marriage can be restored and preserved? Has everything been sought through different means and helps to not get to this point? Notice the two situations. Tragically, that sin destroys marriage. Matthew 19, verse 8 to 9. It's a parallel text, the same the same instance, the same question from our Lord, uh, uh, to the Lord from the Pharisees. And I want you to notice, for time's sake, verse 8 to verse 9, it's the same situation. Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus gives us two situations, not a, a plethora of loopholes to get you out of the marriage covenant, but he says that it must be preserved and cherished by every means possible, but sin destroys the covenant of marriage. And Jesus gives us one situation here in Matthew 19 of, of the sin of adultery, of sexual immorality. So grievous that brings permissibility to divorce and remarriage. Not many loopholes. What's the second one? Well, Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, addresses a different situation that Jesus wasn't addressing with in the Pharisees, but notice in 1 Corinthians 7, there's one other instance, two situations, not loopholes to pursue. What other sin leads to the destruction of marriage? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, concerning the situation where you have a believer who's married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever irreparably deserts beyond repair that, that spouse. Notice 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, the historic Protestant Reformed position, and it's the biblical position, only has these two situations. The Westminster Confession says nothing but adultery or such willful desertion by an unbeliever as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrates is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Wayne Grudem also helpfully notes that when a Christian is irreparably deserted by an unbelieving spouse, and, note this, when all reasonable attempts at reconciliation have failed, so we don't just pursue divorce right away, but we we try all reasonable attempts at reconciliation. Grudem says, when that has failed, Paul says the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, why, why do we end there? Why does Jesus end there? Well, it's a warning, brothers and sisters. Take heed, lest we fall. Take heed of the seriousness of sin that destroys marriages, that destroys your spouse, that smears the glory of God, the one institution for human sexuality that reflects Christ in the church. Take heed. Let this not be you. Let not sin so harden your hearts that it dissolves the covenant of marriage. But by all means, may we invest in our spouse. Why? Because Christ has called us to as Christ loved the church. What's the greatest legacy as we conclude here? It's the legacy that, that Lord willing, one day your children, when they lay you in the grave, will say that my father... He loved my mother so well that I saw the love of Jesus Christ for his bride. And my mother loved her husband so well that it showed me the beauty of that union between the bride and the bridegroom that in everything they did, they reflected the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. That's what we want to aim at. Why do we need to take heed lest we fall? Because we're weak in ourselves. We need the power of God. So as we conclude, and as we think about the context of marriage and the reality of Christ and His bride, it all points forward to that great day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as we look at the Lord's Supper and observe the Lord's Supper, where we see the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ for His bride that went astray. The hymn writer says, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. We were not a bride that was worthy of His devotion. We were not a bride that was worthy of Him seeking us. But we have in Scripture that picture of Hosea and Gomar. That's a picture of my heart. That's a picture of the love of Christ for His bride. What happens to Hosea? His wife, Gomar, she's sold into prostitution. She's sold into slavery. And Hosea, out of love for his bride, and out of pure mercy, he sought his bride in slavery, and he purchased his bride back with shekels of silver. 
that he said, that's my bride, and though she is clothed in immorality, and though she is, is impure, she is my bride that I love, and I am purchasing her back from that slave market. That, that's the love of Christ for you, brothers and sisters, that we were all in impurity and unrighteousness, and we deserve the full fledge of God's divine wrath. But Jesus... From heaven he came and sought his bride, his church. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So glorify God in your marriage. So lift high the name of Jesus. So make a beeline to the cross and never move your eyes from the bleeding wounds of Jesus Christ that show us where love and mercy meet. Do we say with the hymn writer, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die? Brothers and sisters, you will only be able to love your spouse much if you know how much you've been loved, if you know that you've been loved by much. You'll only be able to love your bride as Christ loved the church and still fall short, but you'll be helped when you meditate on Christ's love for you. Isaac Watts speaks of this love of Christ for his bride, and he says in his hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a sinner as I? Was it for crimes that I have done, and He groaned upon the tree? Yes, it was. My infinite crimes. Was that why He died on the cross? Was that why He bled? Was that why He cried out, My Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was. It was for crimes that I have done. That he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown. And love beyond degree. We live our marital life in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. And one day, brothers and sisters, we will be in that day of Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb where we'll see that the Lamb gets all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace. That's us. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your design of creating us in your image, male and female, for your glory. We thank you for the beautiful design of marriage, that great union that reflects and proclaims uh, that union with Christ and his bride. We pray, Lord, as we continue here this morning, and we look at the ordinance and observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we thank you for our great bridegroom who purchased us from that slave market with his own blood. 
and that has given us everlasting life and joy in his house and under his shepherd care. We pray that you would draw us near the cross and help us to see by the eye of faith the redeeming love of our Lord Jesus Christ for such of sinners. 